0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm an associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I have a discussion with Dr. Adam Sifu about a new paper he has that just came out. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at Plenary Podcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Audrey Tran and this is the segment questions from a medical student. We're going to have to rename this segment questions from Audrey Tran.
1: (laughs) I think that would be a, what's the word? I don't know if it would pull everybody in, you know what I mean?
0: I say It doesn't have the the draw power, but it's more apt. (laughs) Well, Audrey, thank you again for joining us here on questions from Audrey Tran. (laughs) Uh, Questions from a medical student. This is our weekly segment where we take a question that medical students have. And it's answered by one faculty member, me, and you just hear pretty much my biases. And you don't get to hear the range of opinions that I continually encourage listeners to seek out when they have questions like this. Okay, but thank you so much for doing this. I think it's actually been kind of fun.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been really a blast.
0: What's the question this week?
1: Okay, the question this week, um, I guess I want to kind of start with a little bit of background or the context of the question mm-hmm. in the sense that I personally am really interested in this idea of translational research coming from a basic science background um, and in medical school I think you just have this different these different perspectives of what's important to our patients and what sorts of questions you ask as a clinician on the front lines mm-hmm. you know what should a treatment should I give how what's the most uh, favorable outcome all these sorts of things that don't really touch I think basic science questions necessarily mm-hmm. even though both of them are kind of in tangent. so i guess my question is as someone who's interested in translational research that being a very large big umbrella what do you think we need in terms of resources education curriculum or anything to translate basic research discoveries more effectively um how do you i think from i think even from the larger picture how do you even start to begin to think about all these different the, the entire process when i feel like it will come to you as you get experience mm-hmm. and you see kind of the, the roadblocks or mm-hmm. like, as you know, even like how the FDA and like, you know, your own research, Yeah. even if you have more things coming across
0: the, like, finish, right, line. the finish line, it doesn't mean it's better. doesn't mean it's better. Right. right? And
1: so mm-hmm. even that, that pipeline thing is like, it's, it's not that we want more things that are of low value, but more that it's, we want things of high value, but then where and how do we as clinicians how do we step in and like say, like, this is how we get quality products or quality things across the line?
0: I think that's a great question. I mean, I guess I'd say, so it's more about the system and that rather than yeah, like the particular education. So. so I guess I'd say, I mean, I do think that the current, um, I mean, I guess when, when people talk about translation science, I think what they mean is, how do we bring novel products, devices, um, drugs to market that meaningfully improve the lives of patients? And ideally... The translation part is that you kind of have a foot in both worlds. You're have a foot in the laboratory where you're doing the preclinical science that supports those products, but you also have a foot in the clinic where you know, what do you want the products to accomplish? What are the clinical tasks that have that need in your clinic? And I think that's really the goal of the translational scientist. And to be honest with you, although a lot of people have that badge on their, you know, Mm -hmm. jacket that I'm a translational scientist, I think it's very few people who really do have that foot in both camps. A lot of people have a heavy foot, they're leaning heavily in the basic science mm-hmm. camp and they dip a toe mm-hmm. into the into the clinical side. Um, I think a lot of people are more clinical and then they, they dip a toe into the preclinical side and they can talk a little bit about where that drug came from but they didn't really participate in it. I guess I would say, I don't have the right, I mean I don't know if I have a full answer but we have some kind of ongoing papers and in some of those papers we talk about this. And we call this, um, how do you keep the pipeline big? Or we call it really possibility. How do you keep keep a system of cancer where there's always the possibility there'll be really major advances? And I guess I'll talk more about cancer because I know that better than sure, rheumatology, sure. for instance. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'd say is I think, I mean, when you look at sort of, I guess one thing is to look at the policy question I mean, that's, that's my bias, the way I look at it. So like, how much do we spend on cancer research per annum? We spend about $5 billion at the level of the National Cancer Institute. That money is used for so many things, from randomized trials that's supposed to help us guide our clinical practice, to people running labs who are really doing um, so-called blue sky sciences, where it's science for the sake of science, try to understand the world, but they ne- may not necessarily um, have an immediate deliverable or tangible um, outcome in their mind. I think a lot of scientists are blue sky scientists. They really just want to understand how things work. But the current grant system kind of forces them to, I would say, embellish, perhaps even lie, about the clinical relevance of their research. And it may not have that immediate clinical relevance. But I think that's okay. So if I was like the czar of the world, the first thing I would say is, although we spend $5 billion a year, I think that's actually quite a small amount of money. Especially when you contrast that with like the trillion dollars we spend on healthcare at the federal level, just through CMS, Medicaid, and Medicare programs, um, we're spending so much on healthcare, plus you know, a whole bunch more money in the private sector, um, and we spend five billion dollars on research that could really transform, I think, the way in which healthcare is is funded. So I guess I would say, I would kind of grow that pot of money, mm-hmm. but I, I think I also learned, and a lot of people told me a lesson that came out of. The 1990s, where Clinton sort of grew the NIH. If you grow a large federal agency and you grow it a little bit too quickly, that encourages people to kind of waste the money, and it doesn't really lead mm. to efficiency. So I think, oh, interesting, yeah, I, this is an anecdotal thing that's told me by many very senior people that they almost tried to find a way to spend the money, and there are a lot of perverse incentives in the lab world, which was. You know, if you're in the intramural branch of the NIH, if you don't spend all the money you're give you, given in a year, next year you're going to get less money. So that just encourages you to kind of frivolously spend your money at the end of the year. That's not a good system. So I guess what I would think is the key to basic science and translation is you need sustained growth. And scientists need to feel comfortable knowing that 25 years from now, we're still going to have the same growth as we do today. It's not going to vary by political administration. It's not going to vary by you know the fickle fads of of the world it has to be sustained on a on a broader time scale science doesn't obey the time scale of you know the presidential cycles and i think Mm -hmm. it's really foolish to wed the two together they should be kind of separated i think we should take it up slowly and then i think people who are running these kind of grants i've always proposed that we actually do randomized trial of granting strategies Mm Randomize people to the current system which has a huge overhead cost of administrative time spent to decide who gets the grant to other systems where one system that's been proposed is a modified lottery where you pick like the 60 percent of things that aren't uh you know that are reasonable proposals and then you just give out money sort of in a random way so i'm not a basic scientist so i can't speak to you know what specific things that would help in the translation but i guess i'll add one more thing that i think is important i think we spend um too much time making people who are doing science write grants there are a lot of people who are very noted scientists who do very little science. They become kind of glorified bureaucrats running grant portfolios. And we, would want, we want to have people spend more of their time doing science, and I think one of the ways to do that would be to make the grant process less onerous. And if it is the case that you randomize people to the current strategy or a modified lottery, and you found no difference in publications or even the rate at which things translate— then I think it's it's a sign that the current system is a, is a waste of time. So I, I think, and I think that's in fact what they will find. One thing I'd say is that there was a really nice paper that came out a few years ago, I think in, one was in the American Journal of Medicine by John Ioannidis. I think the other was in science and both of them looked at the rate at which things translate. And he looked at highly promising basic science findings from the seventies. And he asked how many of them translate on a 12 year time scale. And he found that actually of like 101 claims that were thought to be highly promising, just five led to clinical products in the clinic. And of those five, um, maybe just like two were things that we actually use and are, are valuable. And the others were kind of those things the FDA pats themselves on the back for approving, but they're kind of of questionable value. So I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, which is, you know, how can we improve translation? I think I think about it from the policy side of things. Mm-hmm. How can an individual lab improve their translation? I don't know the answer to that question. I I feel as if individual scientists are a bit like people who play the lottery. They know that they face uphill odds, but yet they all believe they're going to be winners. Um, And I think they kind of have to, to go put the hours in that they do. Um, And many of them, I think, perhaps get comfortable because they are running large operations, not because they're delivering a lot of great results or papers or, or outcomes, but because they're really good at gaming the grant system. And I think people are good at gaming the grant system are people who really rise through the ranks. And I, I think that that's probably a perverse incentive. And we should probably think about, um, you know, revisiting whether or not the current system of grant giving is the right system.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Um, just, I guess, coming from the student perspective, mm-hmm. it is, it's, and especially from a medical student where there's, you know, very defined amounts of time that they would tell you four years here, three years here, yes. three years residency. It, it, it's always just really fascinating to me to kind of understand the timeline of, you know, to understand and to be comfortable with the timeline of development of therapeutics and things like that. And to know, and not, and not even to know that it is even a real fixed timeline, right? Like I think the lottery or the thing, that idea just made me think about, for me as someone who's interested in this idea or this, to, to kind of, it's more of a, I guess, a romantic, optimistic, view of like, I yes, of course, I who doesn't want to translate things? Who doesn't want to ha- think right. that their stuff is relevant, you know? Um, but I think the, the, I guess, the pragmatic side of me is always like, okay, but what does that entail? And what does, hey, what skill sets do you need as an individual? And like, what does a system need in terms of uh, either just, you know, giving the priority to, to understand that, you know, we need money, but not just for money's sake, but right. to really feel like you have the freedom to ask the questions. That you think are important, or the freedom to, or the money to finance the RCTs and stuff like that, Um, yeah, for everything, just to make sure that we are really doing things evidence-based. But yeah, I I think those are
0: the two sides of the coin. The one side of the coin (laughs) is how do you encourage a lot of great ideas to be brought forward, but the second side of the coin is when before you implement them, you need to be put your critical hat on and say, okay, well, have I just been bought into my own hype, and Mm. does this actually work? And there you need probably well-done randomized trials. Sure. But on the first side, the other thing I the other point I, I forgot to make maybe earlier is that so many great discoveries were serendipitous that the the people who were doing the science may not have set out with this particular goal in mind, um, but years later it turned out that it had amazing therapeutic value. For instance, CRISPR-Cas9, yeah. which was originally, I think, thought of, people were investigating how do bacteria protect themselves from viral invasion, and how do they seem to have sort of a learned, uh, acquired immunity when they are a single-celled organism? How can they right. even do that? And then from that humble beginning, CRISPR-Cas9 could easily be manipulated for much better than prior ways of gene editing. So it's a better gene editor. It's not a it's not perfect gene editor, but it's a better gene editor. Mm-hmm. That's so that's, yeah. What's that?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, I love that story. Is you that love that story? Yeah. yeah it's it's story. just, it is kind of the... The saga upon which I think basic science—it it completely valid, warranted, completely uh, deserved—I think—to yeah. kind of use that idea of that it really truly was, um, you know, a structural biochemist um, teaming up with you know just these uh, people asking this basic fundamental question that has just so many profound um, implications, implications, and, and 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 this idea that um, you can really once you dedicate to doing something very well, even even if it doesn't pan out to, you know, having all these implications, I think doing the job very well and to have these, like, excellent papers that are well-researched is is an asset to the community. I, I do yeah. agree with that.
0: And I um, think that that's, that's one thing that we should encourage more, is that if people want to understand how the world works, that you might not know what that leads to someday, but that's still a very valuable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much, Audrey, for coming on. Question from a medical student. And, uh... We'll have you back for future segments.
1: Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it.
0: I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ, and via Skype, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Sifu. Dr. Sifu is a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. He and I together wrote the book Ending Medical Reversal, and and for listeners of this podcast, he'll need no introduction. Adam, thanks so much for joining us here on Plenary Session.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me back to the Plenary Session.
0: This is the big stage. This is as big as it gets. This yes. is the and nobody
2: can ask questions at this plenary
0: session. Right? <laughs> that's, that's right. there's no There's no microphone out there that lets random people come up and ask questions. No, let's be honest though, they don't ask questions. They give sermons. That's what they do. That's what the that microphone is there for. Yes <laughs> So, um you're here to talk about a recent article that's coming out should be timed to come out live with this broadcast, which is called Examination Pet Peeves. And this is about pet peeves that you have seen. And I think it's the second of a series of articles you're working on, the first of which um, is called Presentation Pet Peeves that appeared in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education in 2017. And where does the new article come out in?
2: That's also going to be in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education.
0: So they're they're wise in this journal to commission this series on pet peeves, of Dr. Sifu. So let me start by asking you this question. How many years should someone practice before a faculty member is allowed to have pet peeves? You certainly aren't allowed right at the get-go. Is that fair to say?
2: I think that is that is absolutely fair to say. It, it's, it's funny that one gets to a place in their career where all of a sudden they feel like they can say just about whatever they want and not get into trouble for it.
0: <laughs> and, and and to be fair, do you have tenure protection backing you up? In, before,
2: <laughs> I do not have tenure protection. No, you do not? As a, as a clinician educator, I, I'm not sure that's available to me or at least easy to obtain.
0: I, now, tenure is reserved for people doing non-controversial laboratory experiments. That's where it's <laughs> best applied. So... <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the first, let's start by the first article, Presentation Pet Peeves. So, I mean, you wrote this article in probably 2016, 2017. By this point in your career, you must have listened to thousands of presentations. Is that fair to say? I think that's absolutely true. And they're not all the same caliber.
2: No, no. And, and I think all of us realize this from the beginning. Um, even our medical students listening to presentations from the residents, our residents listen to presentations, you know, even from attendings, um, that we all start to jot down those things, which which kind of grate on us when we hear them.
0: So some of the things you talked about are, um, I'll just name a few of them, um, you don't like to hear the patient's race in the chief complaint. And that's because almost invariably, it is irrelevant to what's about to come thereafter
2: it's interesting when I posted things about this actually on Twitter that's one of the ones that I got the most blowback really about Why? Um, and I, my argument for that is that really as far as the disease and the history of present illness race generally has 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 nothing to do with it I think I say in the article that that if a black patient presents with cystic fibrosis or a white patient with sickle cell I'd be interested to hear that but for the most part, you I'd like to hear about race because I'd like to hear about a picture of the patient. Um, but that could either be in the physical examination or, you know, maybe even in the social history where you're hearing, you know, where this person comes from, what their life is like. And I think it belongs there rather than in the history of present illness.
0: Of course. And in the first sentence, you know, pretty much every word you should be putting in that first sentence should be pertinent to where you're going to go in terms of your assessment and plan with this person, I think. And that Absolutely. probably has nowhere to go there. Okay, so let's talk about the next one. The patient denies. Uh, I hear this a lot. This is some something that's been passed along that people learn, I think, because they hear other people say it. Uh, you don't like this, patient denies
2: can't stand it um you know i i think clearly what it is 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 the person who's presenting is trying to show off how smart they were (laughs) and to say look you know i recognize that this person who's coming in with i don't know acute inflammatory monoarticular arthritis that i should have asked them you know if they went out for shrimp and beer the night before but come on you know i don't need to hear that Mm -hmm. and and if the patient denies it, there's clearly a connotation, maybe not in medicine, but in the real world, that you don't really trust them. Um, and you should say, you know, what the patient admitted to, um, what the patient said they do. Um, and if they don't do it, it should be that the patient did not have shrimp, did not have beer, <laughs> and I'm fine with that.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's easy to use. Uh, it doesn't save any words to say they denied it, and it does cast that aspersion that you don't really trust them. That is true. That is true. What, uh, this is one that I really liked, deferred. Uh, you often see people say, well, you know, the breast examination was deferred, the rectal examination was deferred. Interestingly, it's deferred. Um, but what does that really mean? Right. I, I... I think now we say it without even thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. But but it's it's not that you
2: deferred it, right? You decided not to do it. And it's usually like like you like you mentioned, it's usually things that might be uncomfortable to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so nobody defers an abdominal exam, but people constantly defer prostate exams. Um, and whatever, you know, often that's completely appropriate. You know, my patient came in with a headache, there's no reason to do a rectal exam. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but you should just say, you know, I didn't do the rectal exam. And maybe it's a good decision, maybe it's not a good decision. It's one that you should sort of take a stand and hear about.
0: Yeah, you. I, I think that in that situation, the patient comes with a headache, you don't want the patient to have to defer the rectal exam. You want to not offer that rectal exam. It's not relevant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, the one, we one. don't thing offer
2: I, rectal exams to all of our customers. Yeah,
0: no, I think that's not good practice. Um, one thing I really liked, um, the vital signs are stable. Oh, boy, I hear that so often. So, And what were his vitals? Oh, they were stable. What does that mean?
2: Meaningless, meaningless, and people often point out, which I like, that that the condition most associated with stable vital signs is death. Um, and so I want to hear the vital signs. I want to make my own judgment. You know, are these vital signs normal? Do they tell me something? And often, you know, when we're listening to presentations, we're in the role of not only as a as a caretaker of the patient, but as an educator. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can learn something from your attending and 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 how they consider, a, you know, a temperature of thirty. One in this setting is that important is that not important
0: right uh, to say something is stable or it's non-pertinent implies that you have already mastered everything that is you know st- relevant and pertinent and that might not be the case if you're still a trainee it right, might not Brian, even be the I, case if you're an attending
2: I hear that with with labs as well I have to say Um that i hear you know the labs are normal and and generally you know i'm a very nice guy and when i listen to this when i read like reread these articles i was like oh god i seem like such a jerk um <laughs> but the time that i that i like sort of being a jerk is when someone says you know the the blood chemistries are normal and i get to say Tell me what the blood chemistries are, and I'll tell you if they're normal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then every once in a while, you find something, maybe, uh, you know, the hint of an elevated BUN to creatinine ratio, something like that, that might be pertinent to what's actually going on, might be something you know that, that the trainee doesn't know.
2: And certainly in the hospital with complicated patients who are changing every day, you know, that progressive hyperchloremia might actually be important. Right. um, But you may have learned on your first six months of rotations that we don't know why the chloride's in the Chem 7 or Chem 8, whatever it is now. um, And, you know, the student is not paying attention to it.
0: Now, would you like me to go through the medications? (laughs) <laughs> oh, right? Painful. Right. Painful. painful. Um, you know, my response to that
2: is generally, you know, I'm an internal medicine doctor. I need to hear that. Um, it is it is incredibly important because often you find out about people's past medical history through
0: their medications. Of course. Yeah. People don't, um, they don't say I suffer from depression, uh, but they're on several medications that would suggest that at some point somebody felt they did, or at least insofar as to start the medication.
2: And not to mention that so many of... Our admissions to the hospital or people coming into the doctor with concerns are adverse effects of medications mm-hmm. or you know, expected side effects of medications. It's key. If a patient comes in with edema and you don't hear about their amlodipine, you're going to be lost.
0: Yeah. And I love how you put it. Uh, do, do you want to hear about the meds? My specialty is internal medicine. That's what I care about. <laughs> you know, um, uh, But I actually think the other thing that gets me is they. someone may know the meds. Uh, But they don't know the dose of the meds. And I was like, there's a big difference uh, between a very uh, uh, homeopathic whiff of lisinopril and enough lisinopril to actually do something. Uh, Same goes for statin.
2: And the difficulty is, with how busy we are, is that you, know, you want the presenter to be concise, um, but you also want the important information. Uh, so I think ideally, you know, we have the electronic medical record up in front of us, so we can hear the medications, but we can also check doses as we go through, because let's be honest, you know, listening to people rattle off the doses of
0: 12 medications, you know, you may lose everybody in the room. That's true um so you went to medical school to become a doctor but somewhere along the way you became a healthcare provider is that fair to say
2: <laughs> that is absolutely fair to say and i welcome that no i actually feel like i don't know if you agree that seems like something whose acceptance has passed and while there was a push in the past to be a provider and take care of clients i feel like everybody's pushing back and everybody's going back to you know doctor and patient is just speaking the truth and it's what's it's what we do
0: yeah i um i i don't like that provider client because i think our relationship is beyond um you know providing a service for money i i would hope it is and it's and and to me that's that language kind of conveys a very transactional nature to a relationship that often is far more than monetary transaction
2: it's interesting i was at the um, uh you remember this from years ago uh, the night before graduation here at University of Chicago we have a sort of an awards dinner for the students and and one part of that is is all the physicians in the room stand up and recite the Hippocratic Oath and as I'm reading that and thinking about talking to you today and thinking about the provider client relationship mm. and thinking about what Hippocrates would have thought about whatever the translations into ancient Greek would have been I think would not have been would not have been crazy about that
0: uh, you know you, so you were reading the Hippocratic Oath very recently recently then. So you must have seen that section where um, Hippocrates says, and into these homes in which I enter, I promise that I will take a verbal consent and tweet out images of what I see here. Did he say that? (laughs) He did did say that.
2: He was remarkably ahead of his (laughs) time. Right. right. Um,
0: But that's one thing that it reminds us of the other article that you and I wrote, um, case reports in the age of Twitter. Um, And uh, and, and there we were kind of critical of, um, you know, it feels like at some point, uh, there's a bit of oversharing on twitter of of some of these sorts of things that we've encountered in the clinic is that fair to say
2: yeah yeah it's 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 a tough balance right Um, i mean a lot of what i tweet about are are ideas um that come from patient visits right and um And I like to share those things, and I actually like the feedback I get on Twitter um, about those thoughts. Um, And we as physicians, right, we learn so much from sharing cases, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I really worry about, given the general sense of Twitter, about how comfortable patients will be with us if they feel like there's a chance that what they're telling us is going to be shared in some sort of slightly pithy way on social media.
0: Yeah, I think that's well put. And, and the one thing that, you know, we tried to highlight was that Twitter is different than so many other forums, because You have no control over what someone chooses to add to your um, to your tweet, and somebody yeah somebody may add something that is perhaps insulting, um, perhaps um, uh, clueless, aloof, um, and maybe even hurtful, and and that is is really opening the door for I think um, some bad feelings down the road. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that paper. Let me shift gears and talk about examination pet peeves. This is the new the sequel that's out. You know you're a provider. You're, uh, I think, uh, m- you know, among other things, you are an example of someone um, who is a consummate physician and also a master of evidence-based medicine. So somebody who thinks a lot about evidence-based medicine, what does the physical exam mean for you, knowing that although there's some maneuvers that have strong evidence, good likelihood ratios, there are other maneuvers that rather are perhaps no better than flipping a coin. So how do you think about the physical exam? Uh, uh that's
2: a great question and and I think I probably I don't know I I worship the physical exam less than many other um shall we say more senior physicians <laughs> right. um um, you know, I, I see the phys- the physical exam having two roles for me. Um, one is that a lot of patients who come to the doctor expect a physical exam. It's a way that I, I bond with patients. And so when people come in for their you know their yearly checkup, which they probably don't need, after sitting and at least doing the things that we need to do, I will always have them sit down, listen to their heart and lungs, you know, probably even look into their ears and, and I don't know, you know, feel their cervical nodes. Mm-hmm. Um, the okay. And I totally recognize that that's that's not doing anything for the patient, except it's helping me sort of maintain that therapeutic alliance uh, with the patient. I also do in patients who I see regularly, who I know have abnormal physical exams. Um, I have to say, I I love listening to you know heart murmurs. I love feeling abnormal thyroids. I love listening to good you know chronic Velcro
0: rails with mm-hmm. interstitial mm-hmm. lung disease. Um, in part to remind part- yourself of what you know what this. Kind Kind of pathology sounds like or feels like Absol- or, yeah
2: absolutely absolutely and and you know can i really judge has this person's mitral regurgitation worsened over the last year I, you know i can't do that um uh, but but it, it helps me and it keeps me sharp um, the other thing that the physical exam is for is it really is a diagnostic tool, yeah. and and I look at the physical exam as any test. Um, and so while I'm talking to the patient, you know, I'll hypothesize about you know what's the diagnosis here. And if I'm saying, huh, here's a person with dyspnea, um, I think that based on everything I've gotten in the history that this is heart failure. Right. The way to test that hypothesis is. Do I hear rails? Do I hear an S3? Do I see edema? Recognizing that none of that stuff is terribly sensitive. Some of those findings, S3 in particular, is very specific. And in that setting, finding that's going to help. But I am... You know, not going to do a fundoscopic examination in that person. Not only because I'm terrible at the fundoscopic <laughs> right, examination, right. but because I know you know that's not going to add much
0: in this case. You know, I I um I feel similarly to you. I think it's it's part of building a therapeutic alliance. It's part of the ritual. It's kind of part of what people expect the encounter to be, which is they 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 come in with a certain experience in their mind and and they expect it to be that. But I think it's like one other thing. It is often the time in this modern era and perhaps the temptation that before you even meet someone, you could look on the computer, read the prior notes, look through the echo, look through CAT scans, look at all this information. And in your own mind, you may have already formulated the direction you believe the encounter should go. This person should be paired with this therapy. This person should get this diagnostic test. You know, you already have an idea of what you think it's going to go to. But I think doing the physical exam, part of it is to remind you that no matter what you have thought before you stepped into that room, the most important thing uh, that should guide what you conclude and you speak with, you know, what you end up participating in shared decision-making with the patient for, the most important thing that should guide that is what's about to come, which is getting to talk to somebody and getting a sense of who they are and how they feel and what their comorbidities are, and then laying hands on that person and getting a sense of. Who is this person? Are they physically strong? Are they frail? Are they cachectic through the clothes? Um, uh, Who is the actual person? And and that should always be, um, and perhaps before you formulate any plan, you have to take that into account. And doing the physical exam, I think, is just a, a physical reminder, you know, building into your body's muscle memory that you always have to think about the exact person you're talking to before you make that recommendation. What do you think?
2: Wow, that is really well said. Um, I, I'd also probably stretch that a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's often a time in the visit where it's easy to remove from the room other people who've come with the patient. Ah, and um, get the truth. The patient yeah. is a little bit more, you yeah. know, actually literally exposed, yeah. vulnerable. And it's a time that sometimes um, you'll get a little bit more of a nuanced history or things that the patient was uncomfortable about where you were sitting next to each other, fully clothed, um, in kind of a, a regular relationship, they won't feel comfortable saying. But when you're clearly in a, in, in a pose that only happens in the doctor's office, um, will they tell you some things that are important?
0: Yeah, that's well put. So let's run through some of your pet peeves. Um, standing while taking a history. You know... I think this is a great one. I really do agree with you. I always pull up the stool. I always, you know, find the that extra chair in the room if there is an extra chair or sometimes I take a seat on the examination table when I take a history yeah. because yeah. there's something about and of course, I think there are a number of studies that support this. The mere fact you sit down gives someone the idea that this person is actually wants to hear me out and they're willing to listen to it. What do you think?
2: I, I absolutely, absolutely. Um, like everything in this article, I, I I say I say that I'm not oslerian in my skills. I make mistakes. I don't do everything perfectly all the time, but boy, certainly in the hospital, whenever there's something important we have to talk about, you know, I will pull up a chair or ask the patient's permission to sit on their bedside. Um, and in the office, I actually find it very powerful to um, sit on my little stool that I'm usually sitting in front front of the computer typing on Epic on, um, but roll that over to the table so I'm actually below the patient. Um, and that's terrific since since the way things are set up, clearly, you know, the power dynamic favors me. But if you put yourself below the patient, asking questions up to them, that helps to, to, to even things out a bit.
0: Yeah. Um, and then a number of your other uh, pet peeves have to do with the exam itself. So this is one that I really love. The, I'm just going to take a quick listen to you if you yeah. don't like this. I I can't stand that and it's funny
2: as I started noticing this I can't believe how many people also mentioned this to me yeah. as I talked about this paper um, What I say is that you know I know what we're trying to say when we're saying I'm gonna take a quick listen to your heart It's that I'm not going to trouble you um, But really I think how a lot of patients hear that as you know now I will do a crummy cursory examination <laughs> and move on Yeah, um, Dr. Hirschdick, who, who I think you worked with right of course. In, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah Rob Hershey, um, Northwestern, yeah. Yeah, VA. he he wrote some
2: wonderful um, piece of my mind articles mm-hmm. in JAMA uh, a few years ago, and he has one that's called the Quick Physical Exam, which is is brilliant both in its writing and its content. Totally worth totally worth looking at.
0: <laughs> um, the examination that is a series of random maneuvers. <laughs>
2: Right, um, And I think we're to blame for this, honestly, you know, often in, in our clinical skills, physical diagnosis classes, we we teach the head-to-toe physical examination, right, because we feel like the students um, need to learn every maneuver, which, which they do. Um, but we don't sort of teach them you know, what the physical exam is for. So very often they go into the room and they say, okay, I, I've got a patient with pneumonia, but I'm gonna do a head-to-toe exam, but I don't really have time to do a head-to-toe exam. So I'm just gonna pick some random things to do at every part of the exam. Yeah. And so you see these weird things where where you know, they look in the ears, they listen to the lungs, they check some reflexes, maybe <laughs> they do a Babinski, and you're like, what's going on here? Um,
0: it's like, what is on your double DX that you're doing all these things? What's this differential you've concocted? Yeah, I agree. But you know, I think when we teach them the head-to-toe exam, maybe one of the mistakes we make is, We don't just teach them every part of the examination that you might need someday. We teach them this as if it's a single maneuver performed like the sun salutation in yoga. Uh, (laughs) You know, we teach them this, this, this prolonged ritual. And then they go in and they try to do it. But then they realize that, oh, boy, I'm probably wasting my attending's time. And they just skimp out on some parts. Right. And then it's
2: backed up, you know, on step two, CK, whatever the clinical skills part of of step two. Yeah. They're told that if they begin an examination, they need to do all aspects of that examination. I see. Um, So if you do any part of a neurological exam, you have to do the whole thing. Wow. And if I see a student examining someone with back pain and knowing that, you know, I need to look at strength and sensation and reflexes in the lower extremities, but they start with cranial nerve exam, I just, you know, I go nuts. Um
0: I guess I don't want to go through everything here because I think listeners would want to take a read of this paper because I think it's really well done. But I want to step back and and talk about, you know, what do I think both of these things are getting at? I think, you know, I think you're spot on in your pet peeves. And some readers and listeners, they may not agree with every single one of yours, but they probably will agree with the majority of yours because I think they all get at something. And what do they get at? I think they get at the idea that no matter all the advances in technology and in medicine, um, at the end of the day, this is a very human pursuit. And part of the things that make it very human are when you speak to your attending physician, um, you have to speak to convey information. Uh, we don't want you to put on airs. We don't. It's not about whether or not I think you're smart or wor- you know earned your spot. I'm not thinking about that. I want you to tell me as succinctly as possible who this person is, who came in, what were their concerns, what do you think is going on, and what are you going to do about it, and how are you going to adjudicate the uncertainty. That's what we want to hear, and you want to hear it as straightforward and simple as possible. Is that fair to say?
2: That is so fair to say, and and we're we're asking for transparency, um, which is an uncomfortable um, an uncomfortable situation for the presenter because, as you alluded to, very often that presenter knows that they're being judged, um, and so sometimes what happens is is they try to protect themselves, they try to cover things up, they um, they take shortcuts to make sure that they're not exposing. Um, things that they feel like they should have learned but haven't, and the problem is that that sometimes leads to just you know strange grammatical constructions, um, but often sometimes leads to a lack of clarity in the presentation, which can get in the way of patient care sometimes.
0: Absolutely, I think you know there's so many different categories maybe conceptual categories of presentation probably in 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 what you do being the attending on rounds the morning after admissions the biggest category you're dealing with is someone who came in with um sort of a series of of concerns uh symptoms uh perhaps even some signs and then the speaker's job is to try to move you mentally from a very broad i'm not sure what's going on with this person to by the end of their um i think presentation towards that you know you sort of narrowed it and now you're pointing me at a few possibilities and what are the tests you're going to do to tease these apart is that would you say that's the majority of the presentations you hear
2: that is that is and and the difficult task for the presenter is is i want them to make an argument for here's a patient with dyspnea yeah um i think they have pneumonia yeah. i want it to be clear that that's their diagnosis but honestly they need to give me other information so i can come to my own conclusion yes. um and and recognize that you know they thought about heart failure they thought about pulmonary embolism and why that's not the case or Do they give me enough information that I can say, you know, that's really still in the differential diagnosis, and when I see that patient, that's what I need
0: to work on? Yeah, absolutely. I think... um... You know, in my line of work, it's it's less frequent that I'm in that bucket, as I, you know, as I think one of the major virtues and joys of internal medicine is that you're often in this bucket. Uh, I'm often in the other bucket, which is that somebody has already made what they think is the conclusion as to what is the root cause of what's going on, which is typically right. a cancer. And then the job is to persuade me that your course of therapy is the most logical course. But even right. though I'm in my bucket, when people present to me, the first thing that goes through my mind is... I want you to persuade me that what you've concluded is the culprit or cause of this person's concerns, um, what you believe is the culprit of their concern, I, in my mind, reevaluate like, is that actually true? So it's intuitive and natural to believe that someone's back pain might be caused by their cancer, but is that actually the case? Or are we? is there something else that we haven't thought about that could be um, really the culprit? Um, and, and, and that, to me, is what separates, I think, people who do a good job from a great job of presenting, because the great presenters know that the person I'm gonna present to um, may be really trying to reevaluate the entire case in their mind and and the best thing I can do is to give them all the clues along the way that make my conclusion inexorable so they come to the same thing
2: yes And it's what the patients want from us, right? Um, um, They want to know that each physician they're seeing is reconsidering things, is making sure that we're on the right track. Um, And it can be so complicated for patients these days. When they're in the hospital, they don't know who's in charge. They're seeing 12 different groups of doctors. Um, The upside of that is that everybody's thinking maybe not completely from scratch, but starting at the beginning and say, is our diagnosis right? Is our therapy right? let us weigh the options at each point.
0: Can we talk about that for a second? That's one of my pet peeves, which is, and this might be, I was going to ask you at the end, what's your next pet peeve article? But one of mine is, you know, we're we're the consult team or we're the primary team. We're on the team. And we have sometimes many other consultants, perhaps rheumatology or ID or neurology, you know, who knows who's consulting on this patient. And the consultants say, oh, you should order test A, B, and C. You should order examination Y. You should send the patient for this certain test. And, um, and then sometimes I see people on our team or the primary team reflect just ordering everything the consultants are recommending. And then I come in and I say, why are you ordering this test? Because the consultant doesn't know that these some of these tests make no sense. We have the patient on medication that would remove the possibility of those diagnoses. The consultant doesn't know that. Or this patient may have conditions that are life-limiting for which making some of these diagnoses is not useful or in the patient's best interest, or some of these tests may be invasive or painful that don't serve the patient's overall picture. And then I often hear, you know, trainees say, well, but they recommended it. And then I say, it doesn't matter what they recommend. It matters if it makes sense to you. You know, in other words, in a, in a, in a world where everyone is trying to, Seed authority to someone else and say, you know, this is all a team effort. I want to say that. Yeah It's a team effort But at the end of the day you have to be an advocate for your patient and take responsibility That the tests you're gonna punch into that computer are tests that make sense in your best I, You know with your best understanding of what's going on and if they recommend something that doesn't make sense You do not order that what do you think?
2: This is a great example of of where I can tell when I'm at my best and when I'm at my worst Okay Um, because when that happens, when I'm at my worst, my reaction is, damn it, you know, we're the primary team here, we say what test gets done, and I'm not doing test X, Y, and Z because those are absurd. Yes. Um, on my better days, um, I recognize that the problem here is usually communication, and, you know, we're reading each other's notes. And often a call to the attending on the consult service to say, huh, I read your note. You know, what are you actually thinking about this? And and do we really need, you know, an alpha-1 antitrypsin level yeah, right. on this 85-year-old right. person with end-stage COPD? Right. Um, and, and then you understand that, look, a lot of these suggestions were because of things that they talked about on rounds um, that were academically interesting and everybody learned something from it, but they weren't really thinking it was critical to this person's care. Right.
0: The same thing with radiology, I think. So often a phone call to the radiologist who read this scan Okay, look. um you wrote here it could be a, B, or C. Do you really think those are all equally plausible? And they say, well, right. it's it's almost surely a, you know, That's they right. often tell you that,
2: man, I you know I, I would i would I would not give up the ease of looking at x-rays that we have today for anything. Um, but boy, you know, when I was a house officer and we'd finish rounds with the radiologist looking at chest x-rays and and getting, not only their honest read, where they say, you know, we got to say this, but we don't think that's that's the case. But also occasionally those those things that the radiologists would say, you know, I'm a little suspicious about this, but not quite enough to put it in the in the report. That added a lot to care.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a that's a really good pearl. You know, in my line of work, one of the things that we're always struck with is somebody who had a diagnosis of a cancer that was treated with curative intent with surgery a few years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or even one year ago. And now there is a new nodule in the lungs, or three nodules in the lungs, or lymph nodes swollen in the groin. And one of the challenges here is, um, do do you just assume it was what was there before? Yeah. And I think it's under certain circumstances, that's a fair thing to do. The time course is short. The pattern of spread is uh, extremely consistent. The person is perhaps older has serious comorbidities that would make the definitive solution quite difficult or onerous. So sometimes it makes yeah. sense. At other times, you know, you really have to keep a very broad mind that this could maybe be that cancer, maybe be a different cancer, maybe be something altogether. And right. I think that the challenge in in the art of, you know, what we do is that it's very difficult, one, to articulate to yourself under what circumstances, you know, am I going to do the biopsy and am I not? Because I think even in our own minds, it's hard to kind of delineate sets of principles. But at the same sure. time, we have this sort of belief and you know we over time and experience and reading more and learning probabilities and reading more articles we do come to some beliefs on this topic and I think the tough part is to try to get the trainee to our line of thinking I don't know do you have similar situations you think that come up from time to time and and you're saying that like I'm trying to teach this person how I use my judgment and right yeah how do you think about that
2: yeah, I think to generalize it, right? It's that we we all form a pretest probability yes. of a diagnosis, yes. right? Yes. Um and your example of a possible recurrent cancer is, is a terrific example um because a lot of things feed into that, right? It may be what sort of tumor they had before, is this likely to recur, where is their recurrence, you know, what's what's the time lag in between them. Um and 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 you have to then sort of put that on that line of, okay, where's my pretest probability? Is that high enough that I'm willing to treat based on that? You know, is that sort of past the therapeutic threshold? Or is it below there, but still above the chest threshold where I need to do some further testing? And so much goes into that decision making, right? And that's something that Develops slowly over a career, um, probably peaks, I don't know, at exactly my age <laughs> and then of starts course. declining. Um, but, uh, but the way you say it is, is really good. You know, that's something we have to teach. And often that means thinking out loud talking about why we're making the decisions and really articulating look you know this is the pretest probability based on x y and z and many of the times that's arguable right it's it's not always sort of a a provable fact
0: yeah and and i think um we're all better off when we when we verbalize that argument and and the and the really good trainees always push back hit you hard and sometimes change your mind and i and i appreciate that
2: Right. The, the best time on service right is where you have people who argue with you um, um, I remember once working in another hospital where I was realizing after three days I was exhausted
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: after rounds because I was making you know every decision and it took one day on rounds where I just started recommending completely absurd things and I was getting the you know yes dr C fuse yes dr C you and I was like no you know these recommendations are crazy you have to fight with me uh, <laughs> makes it more fun makes your job easier. It makes people learn better. It's the way, it's the way round should work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, it, yeah, you, you want to, you want to get into a little bit of fisticuffs with the, with the house the staff. <laughs> um, but let me ask you, uh, this is another thing that it makes me think about, um, which is part of the art of medicine, which I think is, the incidental findings. Anybody who spends any time in the healthcare system in this country is going to get some things added to the list. They're going to get a scan for one purpose that finds a thyroid nodule, an adrenal nodule. Somebody finds a protein albumin gap, they get an SPEP sent off. You know, they're going to find a little bit of anemia, a little bit of an MCV elevation. There's going to find some lab that falls out of the normal range. And often, um, you know, when when the trainee is approaching this, even diligent trainees, um, you know, the kinds of trainees who may have been AOA or gotten honors, they just make, they keep a running list of all of these incidental findings, and then they just continue to follow up on those incidental findings. So this test warrants this, this test warrants this, and we're just going to continue to run this juggernaut. And part of what I think the art of medicine is, and I think it takes It's not every attending that's even got the courage to do this, but some attendings do. I think it takes some courage to say, look, look at the big picture here. These four things on your little to-do list make no sense to continue to pursue. They will never be associated with improving this person's life or quality of life or longevity. You need to abandon these pursuits. The only thing you are chasing are further laboratory tests. You're not chasing the greater good for this human being. Uh, Do you find yourself in this situation? It takes courage, um, right? And
2: and I do think when you're right, it helps everybody, right? Yeah. Um, it spares the patient the harm and the cost of further evaluation. It spares the patient um, the harm of the anxiety that, oh, my God, you know, you, Mr. 80-year-old man, has monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance because of the lab works we've sent. You know, who cares? Um, but, uh, you know, If you're wrong, um, um, you know sometimes you miss real clues, um, uh, real diseases that need to be worked up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think you're right. It's it's the person who's smart and can make that judgment, and the person who's brave enough to say we got to cut down this line of evaluation because it's getting us nowhere. And exactly, we're going to find lab abnormalities without helping somebody.
0: And I think that the irony of it is that we do everything we can in medical education to to beat that idea out of our trainees. Because the first Mm. two years is just memorize everything and everything that must come thereafter and be diligent and keep track of, and then when you're an intern, keep track of every single vital sign and record. And so when I ask you, what was the respiratory rate on Wednesday, you can give it back to me. Me. You know, so we train people to become, you know, incredibly diligent bureaucrats in tracking down all of these things. And then some point we ask them, now you got to suppress all that bureaucracy and you got to do things that make sense. And we need you to be efficient and streamlined, right? I, I we want... can't have
2: any conversation that you don't end up attacking the first two years. Of
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right. I I will always <laughs> attack it. I hate the, I hate those first two years. I hate those first <laughs> two years. And then one day I'll have to disclose my conflict, which is that, you You know, in my in my own particular situation, I felt like a lot of times in those first two years that maybe medicine wasn't the right career for me because I'm not built to memorize things without context. Uh, And then when I went to third year, I was like, whoa, this is a wonderful profession. Where was this? You know, where was this in all that in those first two years?
2: I thought you were going to say that you're being funded by the, I don't know, clinical instructors of America. <laughs> the you're clerkship directors of America
0: time? have uh, asked me to, to speak at their uh, KOL meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you hate that, too. I
2: do, I do, actually. I think we waste a lot of time in the first two years, and I think the cost is not just time. But I think to a great extent, we orient students in the wrong way. Um, so they're so dedicated to um, mechanistic or pathophysiologic explanations for things um, that often they'll base care they'll base evaluations they'll base treatment on that rather than looking to the clinical evidence that we have and of course that doesn't exist for everything but it exists for a lot of things in the 21st
0: century let me pitch you one of my controversial views and you can tell me if I'm if I'm being unfair you have controversial views I just a few I'm I'm mostly straight down the line of acceptable views, but some controversial views. Uh, So here's my view. I I think trainees rightly, rightly, feel as if at times the attendings are getting distracted, that they're not listening to everything they're saying. The trainee said something and the attending didn't hear it and may ask the question later, and it was actually said, it was asked and answered, but the attending didn't hear it. But at the same time, I believe that an under-discussed aspect of presenting is something I call speaking to convey information. And what do I mean by that? I think we live at a time in society, and this may not have been the case, you know, 15, 20 years ago, but we live in a time, for better or worse, because of text messages and Twitter and and the way we watch television and YouTube clips, that people's attention span may be rotting, or maybe it was never that good to begin with, and we have this sort of false nostalgia about what it was like. Um, And when I say speak to convey information, I mean, like, you need to... Use your voice to emphasize what matters, uh, to draw attention to what matters, uh, to speak clearly, articulately, make forceful points, give some pauses to let it sink in and go on with your presentation. That part of what we're trying to train you and and even and, you know, maybe somebody will protest and say, like, look, you know, we're not training these people to be. Broadway performers and I'm and right. I don't think we should be but it, it's a good skill for the rest of your career is that if you can sit in a room and you start talking and people actually like look at this person and say I want to listen to this person because this person is speaking in a way that captures my attention that goes a long way what do you think yeah, it's, in, I, it's
2: interesting I I uh, you're going to ruin me because I'm going to think about that now mm-hmm. going forward I, I I haven't thought about that where I was going to go as you started that question was that I find the job as the attending yeah. a very difficult job, and I feel like what I'm getting is I'm getting a stream of information that I understand why it's being presented to me, yeah. and I need to sort of pick out the, you know, the jewels, the pearls in there which are going to help me. And it's often that I sort of fall behind because I'm thinking of point one, two, and three, the presenter has gone on to point 15, I'm half listening, thinking about the things that I need to throw out, and then I have to then go back and say, wait, 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 you know, I missed point seven and eight, can you tell me about that so I can think about that? Um, and, and, and maybe that gets into your, it's almost mindfulness in presenting, right, that yeah. the person should be looking at the person they're presenting to, should be trying to read is this person absorbing what I'm saying? Have they stopped listening because they're thinking about something? And ask, you know, do you need more time? And maybe what we're just asking for is is more honest, open communication between, you know, presenter and presentee um, to make sure that the presentation is going at the right pace, that the information's, uh, you know, getting across. Um, and what's what makes this so hard is that usually the attending has a role of caregiver of the patient, of coach of the student trying to improve what they know and how they present, and also judge of the student where they're trying to grade them all at the same time. And probably all of those roles call for a different type of presentation, Uh, um, which Mm -hmm. maybe makes it impossible to achieve, you know, (laughs) I don't know, perfection.
0: That's well put. You know, um... I, I think it's a skill that – so I, I've, I've been to many of your lectures, of course, because you forced me to go when I was a third-year student. <laughs> hey, they were optional. <laughs> I think, uh, uh, but I will say that, uh, you know, you're, you're a very good presenter. And one of the things that good presenters do, I think, is as you're up there presenting, you look in people's eyes and you see, do these people care about anything I'm saying? <laughs> and if you look and you get like 75 percent, they don't care. They're looking at their phone. They're buying stuff online. You got to just pack up your bags and say, look, I failed. I have done a lousy job. I don't have your attention. And maybe it's because I'm talking about PFS and you don't know what PFS is. Do we need to stop? And do, you mean, do I need to explain what that is? Or, you know, or what's on your mind? You know, you toss it out there. Maybe we'll talk about that because, you know, we all have those moments. And I think the same is true when you're an intern. You got to look into the eyes of the attending. And if you get that dead eye stare back at you and they're not paying attention, you just have to stop and, you know, let them think it out. And then, and it's the same, I think, in the patient room that we're so uncomfortable with long silence, but often long silence is, you know, what you need in the patient room. You say a few things and then you just stop and, and just wait to see, did this sink in?
2: Yeah. I would love to see a medical school professor who notices that nobody's paying attention just say, so let me stop here. What are you guys shopping for out
0: there? I, 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 um, well, I have another pet peeve there. Okay. So my pet peeve here is when I'm giving like a lecture in the medical school these days, uh, and it's changed over my time because I think when I was a student, it had just started, but now it's an epidemic, which is the laptops being open. When I was a student, there were still maybe 25% laptops open during a talk. Now it's just, a, all I'm looking at is eyes peeping out behind a, a MacBook symbol. I mean, that's all I see when I look out there. Yeah. Um, and and part and then people are, and I also hear people typing and I I don't know, how can any human beings type so fast? I mean, it's remarkable, the sounds of the clicking. I'm like, what are they typing? And, and part of what I want to say is, look, nothing I'm going to tell you up here is something that you need to write down. It's, I mean, it's not that important. You know, you just need to listen and see if I can persuade you and just take away the big messages. And, you know, I'm not giving, I'm not going to just dump a bunch of facts on you. That's not, I don't, I'm not interested in doing that. And and if you don't like this lecture at any point, you should just walk out of here. Just give okay. me that feedback right there, that visual feedback of seeing you storm out. Um, and so let's make that the transaction. You know, you're going to be here and you're going to promise not to online shop and you're, you're not going to write everything down that I say because you're just gonna to listen to what I have to say and in in return I'm going to give you the power of saying and if at any point I do a lousy job you walk out of that room that's that's my feeling what, what do you think
2: I've made the pitch um, in the first year course that I teach that's kind of the one time that I'm you know in front of a, a lecture hall full of people uh, for you know whatever 12 14 straight lectures Um I've really made the pitch that, you know, they can watch these videos at home and that I I want them to engage with me and we have data, may not be the greatest data, that people actually do better when they engage with the information in that way. And actually pulling out a laptop not only harms, um, their own acquisition of knowledge, but actually harms the acquisition of knowledge for the people sitting around them. Mm. Um, I think I will add to that, uh, what you just said, that if, if you're, if you're tempted to tweet or surf or whatever, you know, I, that's fine. Just leave and do it outside. That's okay. I like that. I was going to add when you. I liked when you when you brought um, the issue of of sort of silence and pauses to the patient encounter. Um, You know, it reminds me a little bit of um, Anthony Lembo's uh, work about the honest placebo, um, Mm
1: -hmm. and you know, part
2: of the placebo effect of the doctor-patient visits. He's sort of isolated at being. I think he calls it thoughtful silence, um, having the physician sort of pause and say let me think about that, um, actually helps um, our, whatever you want to call it, placebo impact um, on the patient's health. Um, it's important.
0: It's important. The, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, something that I don't think gets discussed so often in medical education, which I feel I I, I started to learn it from you and from the other, I think, excellent faculty uh, in the clerkship courses, um, which is, I don't know how to put it. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people who go into medical school with the best of intentions. And then somewhere along the way, I think people start to think about medicine as this is a secure living. And in fact, that's, of course, the case that there's few vocations where you can be so well compensated merely by virtue of... Of literally not walking out on the job year after year. I mean, if you if you <laughs> right, simply right. keep your butt in that chair uh, for so many years, you're going to get the title, and then you're going to be able to be pretty well compensated, no matter how you actually perform. Yeah. Um, but w- I think one of the things I really am fond of the University of Chicago for is that we we tried to do more than that. And that's something that I try to do, which is, I hope to in you know you hope you can instill in the trainees that you don't just want to walk out of this being competent and good being able to become a urologist or dermatologist or orthopod and move to whatever part of the country you want. I hope we can convey that you want to be great at this job. And being great at this job means recognizing that there are all these ways in which even when you've done it for you know in my case a decade since I graduated med school in your case I don't want to even speculate how long it's been maybe maybe a quarter century and what does it mean to like try to be great and I think I think a few things go hand in hand being great or aspiring to be great um, having fun during the job and um, going home at night and having the energy to read about the job I think they go hand in hand and so like what I mean is when you're presenting and you're thinking about, you know, the 10 patients you admitted overnight, the goal isn't just to do a job in a way the attending doesn't yell at you. I think that's, a, that's like our initial thing we don't want to get yelled at uh, because we're people who are not used to getting negative feedback because those are the kinds of people who go to medicine. The goal should be, like, you want to do just a superb job in parsimoniously getting people to the right um, tests and the right care without the unnecessary care and over-treatment, and you want to do that in a way that's consistent with their wishes, and and that and that means a lot of knowledge but also a lot of you know the EQ of reading people and reading the attending um, and I think When you start doing that well and you feel like you're in a rhythm, you're going to have fun on rounds. Rounds is not going to be something you dread. It's going to be a chance where you're going to have a good laugh with, uh, you know, with the attending physician about some article that advocates for doing something that you both think is, you know, misguided or you're going to have some good um, teaching points for the students. Um, Rounds are going to go faster because you're going to be confident and then you're going to go home with energy feeling like jazzed about your day and you want to read two or three articles about um, the patients you saw. Uh, and so, I guess I want to say, I think you do a really good job at at getting this environment in your team like this. Are you Are you aware that that's what you're trying to do, or uh, and is that something you're pursuing? Um, I
2: I think learning environment is is very important. Um, I I agree with you. You know, practicing medicine should be fun. Um, it's wonderful because you can have fun. It's intellectually stimulating and. It's one of the few jobs that also you're guaranteed to go home satisfied yeah. because you know you're you're doing good work. Um, the wonderful thing about an MD degree is you know there's such a breadth of things that you can do with it. So I really do think that um, almost anybody can find something that they'll love in medicine. And maybe it's a problem of how we advise people. Maybe it's a problem of how sort of sped up the whole process is. That a lot of people, not a lot of people, that some people end up in fields that are probably not right for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe because it was the easy decision, maybe because they'd never been exposed
0: to the thing that would really be perfect. Um, Let me say one thing about specialty choice. I I think that um, the one thing you never want to do is you never want to let your feelings about the residency years influence the choice of specialty you go into. You don't want to not go into something because you think the residency years are going to be you know, too onerous, and you don't want to go into something just because you think the residency is going to be cush. Because with the perspective of distance, you realize that as an attending, you'll be able to craft whatever hours and balance that, you know, you want. You'll be able to do, you know, different things. You want to do something where the job itself is something you care about and you want to do better, I think. What do you think?
2: I mean I right. I would not have gone into internal medicine if what I was hoping to become an internal medicine resident for, right, three exactly, years, for right. the Right, exactly right. Yeah. It'd it be terrible. It'd be terrible. Um And again, you know, good medical schools, I think, um, do a good job of exposing you to what the next 35 years will be rather than the next three years. Um, And that takes dedicated faculty who are going to welcome students, you know, into their clinics, into their lives. whether it be actually having them in clinic or spending time sitting with them during the clinic to say, hey, let me tell you what else I do. Um, so you get a sense of, of, of their entire kind of professional life.
0: I think um, one of the things that we saw recently was this study that said something like, um, you know, the rates of mammographic screening decline depending on the time that you see your PCP doctor. So 40% in the afternoon, 60% in the morning. Um, And I know from people telling me that there are a lot of primary care clinics where the PCP doctors are financially incentivized to reach a target level of mammography, sometimes like 80% of women between the ages of 50 and 75. I guess one of the things that I think about in terms of primary care and in terms of medicine in the profession is that as physicians, um, we really have to not accept these kinds of things. I mean, even if you are a believer that every patient should get mammograms of those years, you know, every other year, if you're 100% proponent, I think you need to resist this idea that these bureaucrats can come in and by fiat, take a portion of your salary and imprison it in exchange for you meeting a metric that has itself been unproven. I don't know. I mean, we're the professionals in this, business, not the only professionals, but the professionals who have sworn an oath to do what's best for people, we can't let the powers that be dictate how payment should be attached to procedures that, frankly, there is still a fair bit of dispute about. We're not talking about, you know, the rate of yeah. people with STEMI getting cats. We're talking about something. There is a debate. What do you yeah. think? Yeah. I,
2: I, I tweeted, I don't know, six months ago. It was supposed to be controversial. It was supposed to be kind of an essay prompt. Something about how the physician who always keeps his patients waiting is valuing his income over the patient's time, Um, and and I got a lot of good feedback. I was sort of happy; it sort of served its point. Um, But I got a lot lot of feedback that it's not my choice. Um, You know, this is what my schedule is, and and I get it. You know, I get it that we're not always empowered. But I hate the shirking of that responsibility. Um, And whether it's what your schedule is or it's what tests you're ordering, ah, you know, that's just wrong. Um, But again, like all these things, it's difficult. I I said to a patient just last week, I said, oh, it's time for your mammogram. And her response was, oh, do I have to?
0: Hmm.
2: And I sort of paused. And I was like, wow, you know, this relationship is kind of broken mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of course you don't have to yeah. it's your healthcare it's your decision yeah. um, though you know do you want to have a mammogram seems like maybe the wrong way to put it also it's it's hard
0: yeah I, I remember that tweet of yours it was just such a, just such a good tweet which is that and I and your argument was that if you consistently run late then what that means is you prioritize your financial incentive over the patient's time, and because because obviously many practices people receive some work RVU bonus by the number of people they see, and so they want to book their schedules as packed as possible. But then if they're consistently running late, they can make a change and say, "I'm going to have longer appointments because I can't handle 15 minute appointments or 10 minute appointments." Right. Um, but they're choosing not to do that. And then you're right. I, there was a lot of pushback you got. I saw. I, I have enough pushback. I dare not scroll through your pushback in addition to mine. <laughs> but um. But so I was seeing that people were pushing back, but some people saying like, look, I have to do this. But then I, I also want to push back on them a little bit and say, well, you know what? Walk into your boss's office and sit down and be like, look, no one's happy here. I'm more, I'm seeing more patients than I can see in a half day. And the patients aren't going to be happy with the care I provide. You know, pay me less, a little less. It's still more than the vast majority of professions in this country. And I'm going to see a reasonable panel. And if not, you know, we have to we have to come up with some compromise here. Um, So that's one thing I'd say that you know people I think should push back a little bit on the employers uh, Because at the end of the day Thankfully because of our gills, there's only so few of us out there So they can't just manufacture physicians as much as they'd like to Um, and then the next thing I would say is um, I've seen some people say that and I guess this would be worth studying but you know some somebody says that oh every once in a while they're assigned for some consult service and What is the impact of a consult service on their life? and I may have had the experience of having been on that consult service and then I hear somebody yeah. else talk about it. And so when I'm on it, I know the time I come in, the time I round on all my patients, the time I come up with my notes, the time I, you know, do all my things. I hear somebody else talk about it and then I hear that, you know, they may be coming in an hour, an hour and a half, or two hours before what I'm used to doing. And they maybe end up, you know, staying much, much later. And and they may be saying that this consult service is onerous or, um, you know, should be done away with or split or, you know, all these things. And I guess I would say that I would imagine that all doctors would fall on a sort of a bell curve. There'd be some average time we spend to do it and some people are yeah. on either end. But part of me wants to say that if you are consistently finding yourself on the bad end of that bell curve, that you're having to come in at 4 a.m., uh, you know, before the sun has ri- risen to do, uh, um, you know, a medicine consult service, part of me wants to say that y- I think you need to try to improve upon your job. I mean, a little, I mean, I hate to sound, I don't want to try to sound condescending, but I think you have sure. to try to improve upon your skill set and become more efficient. And hopefully that's a skills that you tried to do when you're a resident, but it's not too late when you're a few years into practice. I don't know. Do you ever want to push back on your colleagues and say, um, "I know you're an attending, but you got to get a little bit better"?
2: Yeah, and and you have colleagues, right? And it's not such a big deal to say, you know, let me round with you on this day, or let me spend you know a half day in clinic with you to see how you do things. because, you know, we're perfectionists and it's it's often that we're trying to do everything perfectly yeah. and that's what's making us run slowly. And you have to figure out what, I don't know, I've sort of come to the conclusion, I need to figure out what I can sacrifice um, so I can maintain providing what I think is excellent care but also make my life uh, livable. For me, it's recognizing that, you know, 95% of the Clinic notes I write will never be viewed by anybody except me. Um, and so I know, you know, when doctors cover me and they look at my notes, they say, Boy, a lot of your notes are real crap. And I'm like, Yeah, well, you know, I'm spending the time with the patient yeah. and I'm not typing while I'm seeing them, and I'm actually looking at them, and that's the cost of that.
0: And, and um, meanwhile, on their deathbed, they've printed out a thick stack of their notes and they look through each one, see how, <laughs> how marvelous, look at what they've accomplished. But you know, what you say reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where I think Kramer's taking, like, 50-minute showers, and Jerry says, that's way too long. <laughs> and the Kramer says, can I come shadow you in the shower? Can I watch you take a shower? How are you doing it in 10 minutes? And he's you can wear swim trunks. <laughs> and, he's, of course, he, ref- he declined uh, that yeah. opportunity. But we can do that in healthcare. You can go shadow another doctor. Uh, the last thing I'll mention is recently – and, and I believe I was perhaps even tricked into this um, because um, there was a, uh, a retreat for the house staff and um, another faculty member, you know, said he was going to cover the service without any house staff. Um, yeah. But that faculty member had a conflict and asked me without mentioning there'd be no house staff if I could cover the service on that day. I said yes, only to learn at the at the, at the 11th hour that there would <laughs> be no house staff and that I would be, you know, <clears throat> doing it all by myself, um, which I hope that I'm still able to do. Um, and yeah. so there I went into the job and to do it all by myself. And I was struck by a few things. One, um, I think it's difficult to be uh, a trainee because of how many times you're Cognitive thoughts are interrupted by you know yeah. another interruption. It's hard to keep your focus. Um, and but then I did I did the work without the trainee and I wrote my notes and um, and I was thinking about it. And then the next day um, you know one of the trainees said you know I really enjoyed reading your notes because uh, it's not often you get to read an attending uh, do an H and P on a consult and uh, and to see what you highlighted, what you didn't highlight, what your plan was, and how you wrote it, which probably is a bit more authoritative than I would have written it you know six years ago or something like that when I was yeah. a trainee. Um, Um, And then I was thinking, oh, I have this idea. And the next time I'm on consult service, this is what I'm going to do. One of the new consults, I'm going to have the fellow assign the consult to me and I'm going to be the fellow and I'm going to go and I'm going to see the patient. I'm going to work the patient up and I'm going to come and I'm going to present to the fellow and the fellow can be the pretending. They can be the pretend attending. And then I'm going to let the fellow ask me questions and I'm going to see if I can do it. Well, it's not about if I can see I can do it, but I want to let the fellow have an opportunity to see, you know, how would an attending do this? And maybe the fellow will learn something about what they can do better that they otherwise don't see because I don't present to them. What do you think?
2: Sure, I love that
0: idea. I'd respect you for doing it. Um, are you willing to make this pledge on this podcast that you're gonna the next time uh, your your residents are admitting, you're gonna come in at 2 a.m. and admit one patient?
2: <laughs> I will absolutely not make that <laughs> pledge. Uh, I do. I'm gonna. I'm going to. I'm gonna compliment our federal government, though, that I think the the new Medicare um, documentation guidelines. Actually, really enabled me to go back to just writing a paragraph at the bottom of, of, you know, my admitting residence notes with my, I like to consider them high level thoughts, but at least my thoughts about, you know, assessment and plan without having to get into any of the, you know, horrible craziness of documentation. Um, it's one of those reasons to just, to strive for fish, finishing your residency.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and CMS has now permitted medical student notes to be co media attending, two yes. wise moves. Well, uh, the last thing I'll ask you, because I know we've talked for probably longer than you've expected, uh, is what's the next pet peeves article? What's it gonna be? We've got presentation <laughs> pet peeves, we've got physical exam pet peeves, who are you taking to task next? <laughs> we will have to see. We will have to see. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh, and talking about these two articles. Now out in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education, Examination Pet Peeves. Don't miss the first one, June 2017, the presentation pet peeves. I think, uh, it, at a minimum, this is fun stuff. Uh, it's worth engaging with. And I think, um, you know, being more uh, transparent about you know, what irks us is a good thing because it, it I think, humanizes the whole process and makes uh, people realize that I think the goal here is to to try to do a really good job and, and have fun at doing it.
2: Great. Thanks again, Vinay.
0: You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session, or email us at plenary session at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.